0: Well, good morning. How about this weather? Uh, those uh, strange people you see in front of your house, those are your neighbors. <laughs> They're out and about. I, I just say that because I don't want people in Bible Church calling the police about those, these strangers. No, you want to go out and get to know them. They've been hibernating for the last, what, six months or so, and now it is getting warm and it is Wonderful. We have a very interesting passage before us today as we continue this series in the life of David. And let me set it up this way uh, by speaking personally for a moment. I happen to be a guy that loves reading biographies. Um, A a good biography for me is like an extended meal with a good friend. Yeah, I, I just love him. I, just this week, I finished a brand new biography on George Whitfield. Now, uh, who was George Whitfield? George Whitfield was arguably the most famous man in America in the uh, early uh, to, to mid 1700s. He was an evangelist, and he almost single handedly reshaped uh, the religious culture of America prior to the Revolutionary War. An amazing guy. He would preach three, four times a day, every day, week after week after week, going back and forth between the United States and England. An incredible guy. And man, the meal's over. Finished the book. I'm also just about to finish another book, a, a, a different biography of sorts, on a guy by the name of Eddie Rickenbacker. Eddie was a heroic World War I Air Force pilot. An amazing guy also who flew in 1917, 1918, as World War I is winding down, these um, fighter planes, and they were planes that they attached machine guns to, basically. And what's so interesting is these planes that these pilots flew in World War I, their wings were made of fabric. So courageous, so daring. And I have a special interest in Rickenbacker because I have a, uh, had a distant uncle who actually flew with him in the, what was the spe- early uh, U.S. Air Force. And one of my pr- prized possessions is a World War I Air Force pistol that was issued to my uncle that has his name engraved on it. Really, really cool piece of memorabilia. I love reading biographies. I love reading the stories of, uh, uh, of different people. But i, I got to tell you, of all the biographies I've read, and I've read a lot, my favorite is the biblical account, this Old Testament account of King David. It's the most extensive biography, the longest biography in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, it's the most extensive account on a single person in all of ancient literature. Now why? Well that's because David was an extraordinary individual. He was one of the greatest men that ever lived. He was one of the godliest men. He was a highly gifted man. And God has chosen to give us this account in in such detail in his word because David repeatedly in addition to all the things we learn from him about him and about God, David repeatedly uh, continually points to and prefigures the greatest king, Jesus Christ. So we are going to continue our study in David today, grab a Bible, turn on your Bible, there's Bibles in the racks in front of you, and let's go to the end of 2 Samuel, or near the end of Second Samuel chapter 22, it's about page 319, 320 in those Bibles in the racks in front of you, and now we're starting to approach the end of this series, we're starting to approach the end of David's life. And David is here looking back in chapter 22, 2 Samuel 22. And like most kings do at the end of their lives, uh, David would be tempted to focus on his contributions, his success, his power and greatness. I mean, that's what all kings want to do, man. They want to leave a record for history. And they want history to record them in favorable light. But David here doesn't do that. Uh, David instead roots uh, all his power, all his greatness in the much deeper, much more profound power and greatness of our infinite God. So what we have in this chapter, this is a long chapter, 51 of verses, is really one long song or psalm of thanksgiving. An expression of gratitude. Uh, to God for all the ways God has protected, God has delivered, God has saved uh, David. Now David wasn't perfect, but one of the things you need to understand about David is that David was a man of gratitude. He had a grateful heart. He was dependent on God, he was grateful to God, and that just oozes from every single verse here. Now, apparently, this chapter, our chapter 22, is a big deal in the Bible because it's repeated not just once but twice. Because what we have here is also found later in the Old Testament as Psalm 18. And this entire song, this entire psalm is repeated as Psalm 18. And it, as a matter of fact, is the only psalm of David that makes it into 1st or 2nd Samuel. So we ask ourselves, why? What's the big deal about this particular uh, psalm, Psalm 18 here in 2 Samuel 22? And the answer is, it it seems that this wonderfully, vividly reveals that regardless of extreme tragedy or extreme, extreme success, and David had both, life ultimately isn't about us it's about God critical critical life lesson and here David knows that and here David reveals that and I think that's why this psalm is here because regardless of extreme tragedy extreme success at the end of the day if we understand life isn't about us and it's about God it it changes everything and today what I want to do is help you get that help you understand that critical life lesson Because David knew that even though he was king, there was only one king, and that is God. So what we have here is an incredibly happy, uh, uh, joyful uh, song uh, where David expresses his gratitude, his, his, his dependence, his joy. In all the ways God has delivered him. And what I want to do is I want you to see three things. Just three things. We're not going to read all of this. I'm going to kind of bounce around because it's so long. I want you to see three things as David looks back over his life and reflects. And as he thinks especially about all the conflict in his life. All the battles. All his enemies. All the adversity. And he shines a spotlight on God's sustaining grace rich stuff here so so follow with me the first thing i want you to see of the 3 is the surprise of david's humility and we'll come back to the beginning but jump ahead to verse 28 we're going to focus on just one verse here david is speaking and david says speaking to god you save the humble But your eyes are on the haughty to bring them low. Gratitude is born in humility. We don't expect this from one of the greatest men that has ever lived. We don't expect him at the end of his life uh, to to, uh, picture himself as humble. Humble. Yet in each and every one of these 51 verses in this song, David in one way or another demonstrates his humility, but here he uses the word. He's not boasting about his humility. Proud people do that. Are you humble? Oh yeah, man, man, I'm really humble. But here David, what he's doing is he's placing himself in a category of people. People who need the saving, rescuing Uh, grace of God because they see themselves as completely uh, dependent upon God. And again, this surprises us because he's one of the most gifted, one of the most popular, one of the most competent, one of the most uh, potent men who's ever walked the dusty streets of the Middle East. And power. uh, Power has a way of making us proud. Strong gifts. If you have a dominant gift in your life, or gifts, it has a way of making you proud. And what does pride do? Well, pride turns turns us into self-ruled junkies. We become know-it-alls. Uh, uh, we think we're we're better. I'm not proud. I I, I love all those inferior people. And we just assume um, we got we got a leg up, and what happens over time is God gets pushed to the. Fr- you can be raised in the church. God get pushed to the fringes, and you place yourself at the center. Man, you think about your gifts, you think about your dominance, you think about about your your, your success, and, and you, you tell yourself, man, I, I'm a nice guy. I I like these people. You know, they can't help but they're inferior. David was the king. Honestly, most of the people around him were inferior to David. David was repeatedly tempted by power. Repeatedly tempted to think that he was the ultimate authority. But in verse 28, he expresses what the rest of the psalm implies. That in spite of all the people who told him how wonderful he was. In spite of all the success and the victory in battle he had, the reason David was able to keep his feet on the ground in victory, not collapse in defeat, and then confess and repent and turn from his adultery and murder, and then write a psalm or two about it so the whole world would know about it was because of his humility what is humility well according to verse 28 according to david it's seeing yourself as completely dependent upon god on the loving god for life for deliverance for salvation you save the humble It's knowing you need to continually be rescued from from yourself. Now now let me talk about today because the air we breathe culturally is different than the air David breathed. Today we find ourselves living in a world that offers, now follow me, offers significance without transcendence. Uh, uh, Significance without a, a belief in God. Uh, So, people today have their jobs, have their weekends, have their friends, have their hobbies, have their stuff, have their possessions, their trips. They don't think anything is missing. Feel significant. Significance without transcendence. But let me tell you what's missing. What's missing is the humility to see the depths of the twistedness, the self centeredness of the human heart. Uh, 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 what, what's missing is being a, 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 able uh, to, to see that we continually need to be rescued from ourselves, from our envy, from our pride, from our anger, from our lust, from our greed, and, and, and on and on. And our world and our politics and our marriages and, and our families are so increasingly on the rocks because of a complete lack of humility. Significance, yes. Humility, No. And the higher up you go, man, the more blinded you become. Uh, Not David. Uh, David says at the end of his life, after all his success, you save the humble. And he is not saying humility makes me worthy. He says humility makes me open. It makes me dependent on you, God, and your transcendence, your power, and your glory because I know the desperate condition of my heart. You will never, ever understand David unless you understand his humility. You will never, ever be the person God wants you to be unless by God's grace you live in humility and dependence upon God. Let me go on, number two. The second thing I want you to see here is the clarity of David's identity. Now let's go back to the beginning. I wanted to trace out this humility. Now let's go back to the beginning and pick it up in verse one. David sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock. In whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold, my refuge, and my savior. Here we see grace in the Old Testament. From violent men you save me. I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise and I am saved from my enemies. The waves of death swirled about me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me in my distress, I called to the Lord, I called out to my God, and from his temple he heard my voice, my cry came to his ears, and the rest of this song is a song of David's testimony of God's deliverance. Now here in these first couple verses, I want you to understand that David is prefiguring the salvation, the believer enjoys in Jesus Christ. Do you want to know what God did for you? Man, read these first seven verses. It pictures your salvation. But I want to focus on something else. Someone has said there is a horrible disease working its way through the church. And the problem is, we don't know we have it. And the disease is identity amnesia. We are identity amnesiacs. And the reason this is such a a big deal is because you and I never escape we we can 't get beyond it 's impossible to live apart from the identity you assign yourself so if it 's your job you assign that identity to Uh, to yourself and it's your job or maybe it's your possessions or maybe it's your athletic ability, musical talent or maybe it's your kids or maybe it's uh, the stuff you own. Maybe it's your pet. I don't know. Maybe you have a pet alligator. And and, and you assign that. You you, you see yourself in in light of that. Then that over time begins to define you. And, And you know what? You can never escape this. Now they may change but you can't escape it. Here at the beginning of chapter 22, David speaks to the only lasting contentment-producing identity, the only place that lasting contentment-producing identity can be found. And note, it's always, it's always, your identity is always exposed in trouble. For David, it's, as he says in verses 5 and 6, he thought he was going to die. And he's describing the repeated near-death experiences he has at the hands of his enemies, at the hands of Saul, the Philistines, the, the, the different countries around him, even the betrayal of his son Absalom who tried to uh, take over the throne and have David uh, uh, assassinated. What you cling to, what you care about in, in trouble reveals your identity. Now, what was David's identity? Well, according to verses 2 and 3, it was the rescuing, unstoppable love of God. I mean, look at all the different ways David describes God in verses uh, 2 and 3. Rock, fortress, deliverer, uh, refuge, shield, horn, salvation, stronghold, savior. In other words, key point, David's identity begins with this theology. What he knew about God, what he believed about God. But there's something else here I don't want you to miss. David doesn't speak in the abstract. Because before almost every one of these metaphors, he inserts the two letter word my. Theology isn't helpful in the abstract. And this two-letter personal pronoun changes everything here. It makes all the difference in the world because it's a difference between a rock and my rock, a savior and my savior, a wife and my wife. Now, Now, why does that matter or why does this matter? Because David wasn't raised in Wheaton. He was raised in Inglewood. Saul was to David what Isis is to the Middle East. Day after day, year after year, for a decade or more, David was on his run for his very life from King Saul, who was continually attempting to murder him. But he was secure, he tells us. Not unafraid, but secure. Because at the core of his being, he knew that God was his rock. My rock, my fortress, my refuge, my savior. And that was his identity, not his circumstances. He had clarity about his identity, about who he was, about who God is, because he had clarity about the character of God. So he was secure, not in his abilities, and his abilities were enormous, but in God's abilities. And that, please, please, for David, this wasn't an abstract thing. This was a highly personal thing. You are my rock. You are my savior. You are my refuge. Now, our problem, and this isn't unique with me, is that this divine my that we see here does not reside in our hearts like it did in David's. So we sing, we go through our days, and, and we know, yeah, God's a fortress, God's a refuge, God's a savior. Uh, but functionally, uh, we deny all the time, God is my savior, God is my fortress, God is my rock, God is my deliverer." But what I want you to understand, these two, this two-letter word "my" that's repeated over and over here by one of the greatest men that ever lives, changes our identity forever. And I want to invite you into this experience. I want you to know this at the uh, depths of your being. Because your significance, your security is not a function of your possessions. It's not a function of your performance. It's a function of who God is and all that he has done for you this side of the cross in Jesus Christ. And so... uh, at, at the end of the day, you don't have a possession problem, you don't have a job problem, you, you, you don't have a relationship problem, a friend problem, you have an identity problem. And when things get difficult, your real identity gets exposed. Always does. Always does. David was David because in the face of continual death, dismemberment, whatever. He was able to say, regardless of what happens to me, God is my rock. And the intensity of David's passion here is a function of the clarity of David's vision of his identity. So what we see here in this song near the end of 2 Samuel is the surprise of David's humility and it's a surprise because what kings are like this? And we see the clarity of his vision. Now let's go on, on the third and last thing I want you to see is the dominance of David's faith. And if I can, I want to give you four illustrations of this. And to get at the first, ignoring God, the problem with ignoring God isn't merely that it makes us bad, and it does over time, but the problem with ignoring God is also that it makes us small. Small because we lose the mystery, the majesty, the the sense of divine presence, The supernatural, God's transcendence. So, for example, when we ignore God, the mountains are just mountains. They're not metaphors for the majesty and the righteousness of God, as Psalms 36 says they are. And the stars. Last night you could see a fair amount of stars, even in Chicago. Uh, uh, The stars. are just the stars. They're, they're not a picture of the handiwork of God, and all that awaits us as as children of God and our future with God forever in heaven. And love. What is love? Well, love is just a feeling. Love is uh, just a, a emotion. You can define it in whatever way you want. But love, when you ignore God, it, it, it is not a is not a window into the divine love that. It imbues every single atom in the universe, ultimately revealed in God sending His Son. So when we ignore God, man, the mountains, our view of the mountains, our view of the stars, our view of love, small. And we become small. And we become petty. And we become rudderless. And what strikes me over and over in this song is that David looks around and sees almost everything in his life as a metaphor for God. The huge rocks of the Middle Eastern desert, uh, we look at those and what do we see? We see rocks. What does David see? David sees a fortress, David sees shade, David sees refuge. God, you are my rock. And he piles metaphor after metaphor uh, 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 on top of one another here in the psalm. Let me just show you one more. Look at verse 29. You are my lamp, O Lord. The Lord turns my darkness into light. Uh, The Middle Eastern oil oil lamp uh, uh, is just a little thing. You put oil in it, you light it. And David looks at this Middle Eastern oil lamp, and I've got a real old one at home. And David says, that's God who lights my way in the darkness. It's God. David's faith, here's my point, David's faith was so deep, David's faith was so dominant that every time he turned around, he saw God. He saw God. God. And his use of metaphors here demonstrate that. Second, David's faith was so dominant that it made David absolutely certain of the love of God in his life, the the radiant, vibrant, life-changing love of God. If you go back to 1 Samuel, David famously says to Jonathan, after he's been fired, he's lost his job, he's been pink-slipped, and he's about to spend the next decade running for his life from the king. David says to Jonathan, there's just a step between me and death. A step. How would you like to spend the next decade of your life living that way? Now, as you know, Rhonda and I have been through a fair amount in our lives. We both lost spouses after decades of marriage to cancer, brutal, aggressive cancer, six months ago, we almost lost one of our adult daughters. So I, I think about this stuff a lot. It's just my world, it's my assignment. Let me give you a verse here that I find so helpful, so hopeful, it, it, it makes me cry. Because it's written in the context of a near-death experience. Let's pick it up in verse 17. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. Another picture of salvation. He drew me out of the deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my disaster, but the Lord was my support. Now here we go. He brought me out into a spacious place. That's significance because adversity is often in the Old Testament described as a tight place. Now David is brought into a spacious place. And here we go. He rescued me because he delighted in me. What? David lived one of the most difficult lives imaginable. Yeah, he eventually became king. But man, his 20s, his 30s were incredibly difficult. His life was brutal. But David did something. I want you to understand, he never judged God by his circumstances, by his experiences, by how he repeatedly seemed to get shafted by the king, his former boss. Because at the core of his being, this man knew that God was fond of him. God loved him. As he says, God delights in me. And, and I, I read this and I think, why, why, Rob, why in the world are you so uptight? Why are you so hard on yourself? Why can you be so hard on others? Why can you get uh, fearful? Why can you get negative? Why can you be angry? If we know Jesus Christ, God delights in us. Delights in us. He delights in you. Uh, David knew that. Uh, David expresses that. And for those of you that feel worthless, for those of you that feel washed up, I, I remind you that David said this after he committed adultery and murder. You may feel that no one gives a rip about you. You may feel like you are beyond hope that what you have done is unforgivable. But David's faith was so dominant. That he knew his life wasn't a function of his behavior, wasn't a function, function of his past. It's a function of God's grace. God delights in me. God delights in me. And when you can't sleep at night, or when you've been hammered like I've been hammered, man, let me, let me encourage you to find your way to verse 20. Third, go to verse 30. David says, With your help, I can advance against a troop. A troop. In other words, what we see here is David's confidence in the power of God. His faith was so dominant. That his confidence in the power of God dominated the landscape of his life. That although he knew full well the dangers inherent in battle, inherent in war, I mean, he had to be a military genius. He was willing to take incredible risk. He was willing to advance upon a troop. He was willing to to scale, leap over is one of the ways to translate this. a, A wall to do the humanly impossible because he was confident in the power of God. A couple nights ago I was talking to my buddy missionary Tom Doyle. Tom's preacher a couple times. He's led our uh, trips to Israel with me. Just an amazing guy. Um, uh, Oversees the Middle East for a, a mission organization called E3. They're the ones that do the I Am Second videos. Tom and I were talking. And he was saying, Rob, what God's doing right now in the Middle East is unprecedented. And he shared some stories, and one of the things he said, um, right now in one refugee camp in the, in the Middle East, uh, just recently, 90 people came to Christ, and they are not from Christian backgrounds. And then we talked a little more, and we started talking about our, our, our families, and he said, oh, you're not gonna believe what's going on. I said, what's going on? He said, two of my sons right now are in a city in the Middle East ministering where they estimate there's several thousand ISIS foot soldiers. And then he said, Isn't that cool? <laughs> now we're afraid to tell our neighbors about Jesus. Yeah, I, I want to talk to you about Jesus. I want to talk to you about Je- what? Yeah, I want to talk about Jesus. <laughs> we can't get the name out. <sighs> One of the reasons David is so amazing, one of the reasons I so love Tom Doyle is because, man, they're going to advance on troops. They're going to take risks because of their confidence in the, in the power of God. Now I need to land this. Let me give you one more illustration of the dominance of David's faith. And this is for those of you in the marketplace, those of you that work real hard in education. We've got a lot of teachers, a lot of school administrators here. Uh, those of you that are in medicine or, 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 or picket, what I want you to understand is that David understood work from a biblical perspective. And he understood, follow me, that work is not a curse, not a curse. Apparently, David understood, and and I'll show you this, that one of the primary ways we honor God, one of the primary ways we live a meaningful life, one of the primary ways we contribute to the community around us, we protect, we serve the community around us, is through our work. But today, what do we do? Well, we want to separate the sacred from the the, the secular, and we view the secular as bad. David didn't. Let's pick it up in verse 33. Verse 33. It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to stand on the heights. He trains my hands, underline that, he trains my hands for battle. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. You give me your shield of victory. You stoop down to make me great. You broaden the path beneath me so that my ankles do not turn. Now what was David's job? What was David's work? David's work was war. David was a soldier, a career soldier. He was a soldier long before he ever became king. That means the work God assigned to David was incredibly brutal, incredibly dangerous, that the conditions were just awful. Yet here David reveals a total integration of faith and work. He, he says, God, you've trained my hands for battle. One of the worst assignments there is. You've gifted me, he's saying. Um, so in other words, David understood by faith uh, that his work was a, a way to worship God, a way to protect people, a way to serve his community, a, a way to honor God. I want to tell you, that's faith. Faith. It takes faith to see that God trains your hands for battle. Whatever your battle is. So you can honor him and you can serve him wherever you are, whatever you're doing. By contributing to the the good of people around you, the the good of, of community. Please, please, if work wasn't a curse for David and his work was war... Your job is not a curse. And God is training your hands for battle. And use them to glorify him. So what we see here is David's faith. The dominance of faith in his life enabled him to see God in everything. He turns everything into metaphor. It enabled him to understand how much God delights in him. He he was a man who could say, God delights in me. You may not like me. Things may be really bad. I may be about to die, but God delights in me. And I'm going to be okay. And and, and then his faith was so dominant, he understood that God empowers him. This guy was a risk taker. (sighs) And enabled him. To see his work as a way to glorify God. Let's pray. Father, you are, as the ancient hymn says, a mighty fortress. Would you give us the grace in our lives to underline mighty? To believe it and to live it. That we might honor you. We thank you for all you've given us in your son. For the wonder of your love that that we see in a way David couldn't even see. Because we can look back and see Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.